Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show is from the field, and it takes you to where you find those aha moments and mastermind meetings that bring you closer to your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Maybe you'll hear a bird chirping in the background, maybe a car driving by, maybe a little ambient noise from conversation at a nearby table. Are these the places where you have some of the most profound meetings, most enervating conversations? It certainly doesn't happen in some $25,000 sterile soundproof Hollywood studio, of which we don't have one of. So today, we come to you from my sumptuous living room in my Las Vegas apartment here in the hottest city in America, and we are going to be discussing from transition to transaction and avoiding ownership pitfalls. See, growing a business requires preparing and planning for the future in order to make it transferable, which means saleable, among other things. Our guest expert teaches entrepreneurs about how to make their business firm by helping them maximize enterprise value creating succession plans, and identifying merger and acquisition strategies. So guiding us through this today, we have Laurie Brinkman. She's known as the Business Transition Sherpa, and with her firm called Small Dot Big, she advises owners on having more valuable, sellable businesses. And as a partner with Stony Hill Advisors, a mergers and acquisitions firm, she guides them through the complex process of letting it go. Laurie is a CEO, a former CEO of a $100 million revenue company with an exit to a Fortune 50 company. With more than 25 years of C-suite and award-winning marketing expertise, she provides actionable perspectives to drive sustainable value. Engaging audiences across the United States, Laurie, Brink- Laurie Barkman is also an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon University, leads executive workshops at Vistage and hosts a weekly podcast called Succession Stories. She learned her she earned her MBA from Carnegie Mellon and a BS from Cornell University and is a certified value builder advisor and has a certificate from the Exit Planning Institute. Woo Nelly. Lori Barkman, come on in. The weather's fine. <laughs> Great to be with you, Adam. Thanks for having me on your show. I am not sure I'm worthy to be here and this is my show. So what we like to do is I read off your official bio as best I could, and holy moly, before we dive into this whole thing about saleability, M&A, all the other fun stuff we're going to cover today, the first thing we ask our guests is tell us a bit about your own journey, something about it in your own words that helped catalyze bringing you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Got started as an intrapreneur, if you're familiar with that term. Please tell us. 
someone who in a big company or mature company, well-established is in an entrepreneurial team, an entrepreneurial business. For me, that was in an e-commerce business unit when a retailer was just trying to dip their toes in the water. So this is about 20 years ago. And our business unit was that startup, but we were a startup within a well-established company. So that's an intrapreneur, someone who might be working within, again, a well-established entity, but they're the ones that are saying, hey, let's try to be more nimble. Let's test these things. Let's maybe use some techniques that the startups are more familiar with. And for a number of years, that was kind of me going back and forth between startups Mm -hmm. and larger companies and being able to take some learnings from one to the other. So in a, in a, in a startup, it's kind of a, maybe a surprise. Startups are, are yearning for structure. And in well-established companies, of course, there's a lot of structure in place. And so those nimble, the nimbleness, the structure, the processes, how to think about things from both sides of the table was how I initially in my career, I would say the first you know, 20 years or so in, in growing in my leadership and, and different experiences, different industries, but back and forth and having that perspective of how to bring innovation, growth, and a mindset, you know, growth mindset to, uh, to well-established companies became something of a signature for me. Yeah, you know, speaking of startups, I've been involved with a few of them. And part of the work I do through my business consulting arm is I've worked with some startups to move them into revenue. In my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. I argue that the fastest way to get a startup into revenue is to simply find somebody who will pay you to do something that's related in some way to what your startup does. I've also seen, I've seen startups take that approach and quickly grow. I've also seen startups meet to death. They have meeting about meetings, about after meeting and meeting and meeting, and eventually they just get tired of the meetings and just kind of fizzles away. I've seen startups that were in startup mode for three years, and then they just got exhausted with the startup process. So what would you say to folks? Because we're not even into the point where we're dealing with monetization, saleability. We've got to get the thing started first. What would be your approach and what would be your recommendation for a startup that's where it seems like it's like the proverbial lawnmower, where they keep on pulling at uh, that trigger cord and it just ain't firing up? We got to go to the basics. The, the starting point is what problem are you solving? What pain points are you solving? And who are you solving it for? Okay. And I like how you advocate in your introduction <sighs> of your show to get out of your chair and, and go talk to people. And that's a big part of in the startup world, or even a big company, if you're in working in corporate innovation to understand what the market needs are. And you can certain, certainly do the study and look at the numbers and the total available market and look at the big industry reports. And if you're a, a startup looking to raise venture capital, you're probably pretty familiar with that because you got to show that there's a lot of market potential. And then you really need to dive into, well, what specifically is your market and what's a realistic target market? And how do you get to know them? Well, one way is talking to them. Do you literally need to talk to them? Well, maybe you can do interviews. You can do, you can do quantitative surveys. There's, there's ways to get first, firsthand information in addition to the third party research. And that's really what matters. The more you can hone in on what problems you're solving, who you're solving it for, you'll start to develop a picture of what we call an archetype or a persona. And maybe you have more than one of those. 
And then the next phase of that work is to understand their experience enough, current state, to map out what we call a customer journey. And it doesn't have to be complicated. It can be with post-it notes or or what have you. But imagine Starbucks pre-mobile, right? And going to Starbucks and waiting in line. And so you can kind of say, hey, at at this process step, was there a happy face or a frowny face, right? It can be as simple as that to know some of the experience and pain points. And it could be with any, any product or service where you can map out the experience that someone's having and try to figure out where are those frowny faces. And so many times we get excited about great tech. You know, we get great, get really excited. Oh, I got this great, I got this great software. I got this great app. Okay. Well, what is it doing? You know, that's the, I don't know if you've ever heard the saying about, uh, you know, if you want a if you want a quarter inch hole, what do you really need? You don't really care about the quarter inch drill bit. You really care about that measurement, and you want the right size. You want the quarter inch uh-huh. hole. But so many times we're selling the feature. We're not selling the benefit. And as for when I when I say pain points and trying to solve pain, clearly that would be a benefit to help make someone's pain go away is a really good thing. It also could be the the flip side of that, which is certainly the you know, the positive. And so it's not only about the negative, but this concept of understanding the benefit, what you really you're trying to solve, and then going after that market in, in a focused way. Yeah. I don't know why, but what you just said made me think of something that I experienced maybe about, I think it was about 12, 13 years ago, back when I was in a way different business. And this involved a client of ours, and it was a good client. They uh, belong to a mastermind. Well, gee, who doesn't belong to a mastermind these days? And one of the other members of the mastermind was somebody who had a startup that was releasing some app. I can't remember what it did, but I just remember it took the form of a WordPress plugin. So this client went ahead and they had some WordPress knowledge of their own, and they installed it on their own site. And as soon as they installed that plugin, the load time on the site went from about three-fourths of a second to two and a half minutes. And we're not talking about a major blog. We're talking about a landing page with an opt-in form. That's Major, what this major means. frowny face. That major, major, major frowny face. So I, uh, so the client asked for my help. And as soon as I read the request, I already knew what happened and I already knew what to do. So you pull out your load speed testing software and you do a test with the plugin activated. Deactivate it, run the test. Activate again, run the test. Deactivate again, run the test. Do it back and forth four times to clearly show that that plugin and plugin alone is the entire cause of the issue. Hand it back to the client and say, it's because of this plugin you went and installed that uh, wrecks your site. And uh, my client said, are you, sh- are you sure? Are you sure? Uh, I mean, can you check the plugins documentation? So, yes, I Googled your plug. I Googled this plugins documentation. The only information I can have about it are paid for reviews that were placed by the developer of the plugin, which looks like it was launched about three weeks ago. Let me guess, a buddy of yours? Yeah. Uh, well, I just want to be able to tell my buddy I'm using the plugin. I said, go ahead, use the plugin and tell your buddy that your plugin fucks up his, your site. So you can tell your buddy you're using the plugin. 
Well, so, uh, that, this this falls under the category of unintended consequences, right? Exact, when you take exactly. an action and you got to look for the reaction and and it's good to do things in small bites. So in this case, yeah. if they did the plug-in and it wasn't a big deal, maybe it wasn't a major site redesign. I've yeah. seen it. I've seen it where a company will redesign their website and they put a lot of bells and whistles into the homepage. But then like to your point, okay, we've, you know, load speed has, has, uh, you know, degraded by 20 X and that's a problem. More than, tw- more than 20 X. If you do the mathematics on that. So what, so what I wanted to bring up is what mattered most to my client was being able to tell his buddy that he was supporting his buddy. That's why. And when I got the sense that he was really, that he was going to try and push me to try and make this thing work because it was his buddy's plugin. That's why I said, yeah, go ahead. If you want to tell your buddy that you're using his plugin, leave the plugin installed and tell your buddy, hey, I'm using your plugin. It's totally fucking up my website and I'm not making any leads, but I'm using it. Makes them feel good. Makes them feel real good. I'm using the plugin. Supporting you, buddy. Yeah, rah, rah. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, and, I, it's, and, it's, and and I, and I and I was extreme and I was blunt the way that I just described uh, for our listeners who follow this show. They know that I occasionally do fun pattern interrupts like that that make you sort of sit up if you've been listening to this podcast in the background while you're doing something else, driving or typing or scrolling your social media, and it's like, whoa, 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 what did you just say? What 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 I miss? What I miss? So I break that white line. <laughs> rewind, hypnosis. rewind. Exactly, exactly. So that goes back to the concept of breaking the white line hypnosis, which itself sounds like Grandmaster Flash, but simply is a reference to that thing that happens when you're driving a route you're familiar with, and 20 minutes later you realize you haven't been thinking about the past 20 minutes of driving, but somehow you got there safely. Pretty crazy. The yeah. same thing. It's the same thing with podcast listener behavior. People tend to tune it out when it's in the background so just when i thought we were out just when i thought they were out i pulled them back in (laughs) (laughs) you are good at that (laughs) thank you thank you thank you thank you so now that we've you know covered a bit of the pull in let's get to the point where this uh, company has revenue they are doing stuff but yet why would the company not be considered sellable and how would potential acquirers evaluate the company? So in other words, putting those two things together, what impacts the value of a business, particularly if we are looking ahead to something we can sell? Yeah, looking ahead with this business that we've been talking about, what that was a startup, maybe it's taken them 10 years to get to the point where they're in a position, you know, it really ranges. It could be sooner than 10 years. It could be five years, whatever it is. Sometimes we use the benchmark of revenue. Sometimes we use the benchmark of of profitability EBITDA as well as a measure. And sometimes it's just life stage and where the owner is. And for, for some owners that have owned their business for decades, their life stage is probably thinking about retirement. For other business owners, entrepreneurs who I think have this mountain climber mentality where I'm going to climb a mountain, I'm going to be really excited about climbing that mountain, I'm going to get to the top, and then I'm going to want to climb the next one. And for those folks, that life stage might be, hey, I want to kind of get out of what I'm doing right now. I'm not as excited about it. It's doing great, but I'm personally not as excited. I want to go do my next thing. And that mountain climber mentality is going to lead them to want to have an exit. And others who are what I'll I'll call kind of masters of the craft, these could be doctors, Mm -hmm. lawyers, professionals, people who are in 
indelibly tied to that identity. A lot of times, you know, you'd say, I'm a doctor. So, you know, do you own your own practice? Yes. They don't always think of themselves as business people, but maybe they've created a, a really healthy business. And like a dental practice is a good example, or veterinarians. And we do see a lot of those types of, of firms in transition too. So it's a combination. It really could be a variety of factors as to what would make someone ready for a sale or thinking about it or for transition. And then your other question is, you know, what makes the business ready? And the business and what makes it valuable or sellable, I would say first and foremost, and when we talked about revenue is, you know, businesses that are over a million can start to demonstrate that this is a business that isn't just someone's hobby and can be sustained without the owner. This concept of transferability and risk. If we think about it from the buy side, buyer's side and we put ourselves in their shoes, what are they looking for? They're looking for predictability of future cash flow. They're looking for a business to be able to survive and thrive without its owner because the owner is going to be moving on at some point, most likely. Yeah. In some cases, you might have scenarios where the owner stays on for a period of years, but it's in a different role or a different capacity most often. And a lot of businesses are lifestyle businesses where it's not a hobby, but again, the identity of the owner is so tied in. They are the, they are the CEO, they're running it day to day. You know, they're working at least 40 hours a week, sometimes 50, sometimes more. And they're, they're not yet putting their feet up on the desk. They probably don't have second in command and a management team that enables them to take that step back day to day. They're yeah. really very much in it. And to the, the skills that you use to build your business as an entrepreneur, staying close to the customer, especially if it's um, a service business in a digital world, maybe we don't know our customers as intimately as if it's a service business where you're seeing them a lot. Maybe you know their birthdays and their kids' names and things, and it feels great. But over time, if you've become the main hub in this spoke of a business with all these different spokes and everybody's coming to you over time, all bouncing back to you to solve problems. And really there's not a lot of delegation. There's not a lot of documentation around processes. So bringing in new people is always a pain and maybe you're not the best delegator, right? So it can be a combination of things of not necessarily having the processes, the people and the systems in place that makes that business transferable. Um, yeah. Another challenge could be, again, back to company size, there's a, there is a perception of risk around smaller companies for this reason that they are less transferable, they're more dependent on the owners. And so sometimes the 5 million revenue mark is kind of a barometer too. Um, a million to 5 million, 5 to 10, 10 to 20. We do see the, it's kind of like a stepping, a staircase of how multiples look uh, as the companies increase in size in this lower, call it the lower middle market. And so size does matter is the headline there. And industry matters too. Why? Because we do see that different businesses do have uh, comps or comparables uh, of different multiples and in different industries. And it, it goes back to what I said earlier about this predictability of future cash flow. So a tech business, a SaaS company, or another business that has, mm, call it 40% or more of revenue is a subscription model, it's more predictable, right? Because their yeah. customer has to turn off the payments as opposed to us asking for the payments each time. 
And so that predictability is in place and it's uh, that cash flow is in place. So that's important. And that's why in, in those businesses, it's a multiple of revenue. It's, it's, you can find other businesses selling for a multiple of revenue, but typically it's the ones that have a, a higher proportion of their revenue tied, you know, tied in, in, a, in a, like a subscription type of model. Um, yeah. Other industries where it's one-off projects um, or it's, you know, the, the revenue, we have to go get it every year. You know, it's kind of the hunting for it. Um, it's not that those, those companies can't get uh, a multiple above the comps in, in their industry and punch above their weight classes, I like to say. It can happen. So the next question is, well, how does that happen? What would be some of those factors that enable a company to be getting a premium? And the flip side question is, what would be some of those factors that maybe is a discount, you know, versus the industry benchmark? And um, they can kind of work for you or against you, right? So it's good to know, I think, what some of these risks are and being able to, I also appreciate how you said the aha moments. That's a big thing for what I'd like to do with my clients is help them see what they're not seeing. And quick story, if I may. The yes, question you was, may. Uh, why did I name the firm small.big? It's a logical question. So I figured I'd throw that out there at this time when your audience might be going, wait, aha moment. How does that relate? The aha moment was I was playing pool with a guy from Australia. And, uh, you know, in America, we say solids or stripes. Well, in Australia, they don't say that. They say small dot or big dot. Okay. So visually, it was like, boom, you know, it made my head kind of explode for a second. Like, what? What are you talking about? And when years later, when I was reflecting on what to come up with the name for my firm, that came back to me in my memory, small dot, big dot com. So there's a little play on words there. But small dot big is really that focus of, not only how do I help clients see what they're not seeing, and then also that small to big, right? That element. So anyway, I'll throw that little fun fact story in there. So that's the whole point about well, how do we have these aha moments when I'm working with a client and, and we're doing a business assessment? This is a great place to start. Let's do an assessment of your business against these different value drivers slash risk drivers and see where you are and compare you against your peers. And this is a great, this is a great thing to do. There's eight core drivers. I've talked about two of them already. One is, one is the financials and the other one is the industry. And those are pretty important. The next are a smattering of different things. The, other, the third one I've already mentioned too, which is recurring revenue. And what I have is a numerical way to measure on a point scale of zero to 100. So for those of us who like to keep score, you not only get a total score of zero to 100 of where your business is, for those who are more apt to like their colors, it's red, yellow, or green. And of course we want to be in the green, but the reality is most of our companies are in the yellow. And some of these clients that I've seen are definitely in the red. And that's kind of a scary place to be, but wouldn't you like to know that now? Well, time is on your side and you can make changes versus, Hey, I want to sell my company a year from now. And I'm in the red. Yeah. Oh crap. Or as you would say, Oh fuck, what am I going to do? <laughs> well, uh, uh, well, even if they say, oh, crap out loud, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's something when you're having that, uh, what my own business coach calls that 3 a.m. holy crap moment. Yeah. That's when you wake up in the middle of the night and think, where am I going to find the money that I need 
so that my bank account balance isn't negative when it resets in three hours. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a little daunting. I have a client where we're working on evaluation for his business and he has negative net income. Now I'm not going to say that, you know, that's an easy thing that place to be. It's not, you know, we're looking at a situation. I think he's in his uh, late fifties and um, the valuations are going to be tricky unless we can find some significant addbacks, which is the, the way we do valuations. And I can explain that too, but um, yeah, I think basically, you know, having more time on your side to know what these issues are than your business, you know, let's have these moments where we can kind of hold up the mirror and look for these risk tripwires, as I call them. Um, the other one is around uh, growth potential. And certainly in the financial history, and when we do valuations or when the buyer is looking at your numbers, they're going to want to look at certainly the most recent trailing 12 months, but they're also going to ask for either the last three years or last four years of financials. So working with someone like me helps you get organized, which is really important. And if you're using QuickBooks or something like that, that's great. No problem at all. But are you consistent with how you measure things year to year and how, how your bookkeeping is done year to yeah. year? And that's also in this, you know, when I mentioned the number one thing is, is finances, it's not only your performance, but it's also the quality of your record keeping. If your books are a mess, how is anyone going to be able to look at your business and make a determination of value? So we really have to be organized. That's kind of another key message is, is, is being organized around your books and if you're using an outside provider for bookkeeping or you're using whatever you're using, it's great. And I'm not saying you have to use one thing or another, but however you do it, just being organized and being consistent. Yeah. Um, and so a couple of things just I'll mention uh, in terms of value, value creation is um, this growth potential measure. And if you're a company that's kind of maxed out on your, on your marketplace and you, you know, your market share is 100%, and you just dominate. That's exciting. That's great. But if someone buys your business and they're looking to grow your business, they might say they're kind of maxed out. I'm not sure how to grow them versus having the opportunity to really you know, improve the business and grow and maybe stitch it in with other things they're doing or to or invest organically in your business. So what we see here kind of turning the table a little bit is kind of starts to be a buy side conversation for some companies that want to grow, they want to continue to grow and add value and they're growing organically, which means through their own efforts, they start to plateau. And they then think about, this is where I love to partner if they want to do so and thinking strategically about types of businesses they might buy. And they become a strategic acquirer because when you, as soon as you make that acquisition, that valuation immediately is added to your valuation. So if your business is worth 2 million and you pay 2 million for the other company, your business is now worth 4 million. Yeah. So the growth potential there is uh, a really interesting and very strategic conversation, which also relates to another pillar, which is around differentiation and what makes your business special or unique, differentiated. What's that competitive moat you have around your company? What's that secret sauce that someone is going to pay for versus trying to build it their, themselves? If especially if they're a competitor, they're looking to kind of outsmart you. They 
they could be a strategic acquirer of yours and you have to obviously tread carefully there, but it also could be someone else that's in your space that's been thinking about doing something that you're doing. And of course, they're wondering, what would it cost us to do this ourselves? So you have to be able to uh, protect, either protect what you have and um, uh, demonstrate the value that you bring, that it is going to cost them, you know, whatever it is, it's going to cost them, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to get to the point where you are in X number of years. And that would be part of the business case as to why they'd want to acquire you versus doing it themselves. Um, so those are just some examples. There, there's obviously a few more things we can talk about. And some, yeah. some of the things I've already mentioned about structure and transferability around processes and, and some of that stuff. But, but that's really the, the crux of it. Yeah. A, a micro example I can think of, and this is somebody, uh, he's a friend of mine, and he got involved in selling frozen foods, basically, you know, like uh, you know, what back in the day you'd call like TV dinners. So when he launched this and it was like a specific type of food that he would be selling and his idea was he'd be selling it through retailers and such. When he built the model, he looked at some of the leading companies in prepackaged frozen foods and he found out things as deep as where do they buy the boxes they put the food in what printing company do they use to put the artwork on the boxes what merchant processor do they use what machinery do they use to prepare the food and put it in the boxes what shipping company do they use to send it out the reason he went to these levels is because as much as possible he wanted to be using the same systems as a company that he was hoping would acquire his business at some point. And, yeah. he viewed, and he viewed it as a saleability factor that all other things being equal and a, a larger acquisition company could look at it and say, well, this will be a pretty easy integration. They're already using all the same stuff we do. I love that. I love that example. It's a great example of someone who took the time to do what I call kind of reverse engineering and thinking about the exit. Because if part of their strategy was to have these intersection points, it created a number of options for them. Right, right, right. So overall, what trends are you seeing in M&A these days? A big trend is still around the age wave. There's a lot of baby boomers out there who do not have a succession plan. They thought that maybe one of their family members would want the business and they want to retire. The related part of that is acquisition entrepreneurs are either self-funded or uh, they might have a consortium of investors. They are seeking businesses. And a common pattern is they're looking for, it's almost like a, like, a, like a joke. When you meet someone, you're like, oh, what's your investment mandate? And they're all saying the same thing, which is, oh, I'm looking for a business that's got good cash flow and where I don't have to run it day to day. It's got a good management team. And you know, everybody wants this perfect you know, scenario they can just step into. You know, how big, how small, you know, really varies. But let's just say, you know. I mean, someone I spoke with earlier this morning, they're looking as an individual investor, they're looking for $500,000 of EBITDA annually as kind of a yeah. minimum, as an example. 
Um, so they, they have these investment mandates and whether it's an individual investor, a private equity group, a family office, those types of firms are all coming up with their mandates. So the mandate could be not only the size of the business, it could be geography, it could be industry, it could be a number of factors. And that's definitely, I think, a, a trend that's been growing steadily in terms of who the acquirers are. And why I think that's important is because the acquirers we normally think about are maybe publicly traded companies or maybe it's competitors as a category. And we'll call these guys strategics. Okay. We'll put that okay. in that category. And then the financial buyers are typically the ones we hear about are private equity firms, right? And so we normally think about those two buckets. Well, then these other ones that I mentioned have a volume of deal flow that isn't necessarily top of mind or shared as broadly as some of the PE deals. And in the space of the lower middle market, which I'll describe as call it, you know, under 20, 25 million in revenue businesses, these are likely acquirers that you might have never, ever heard of. And there's a lot of them out there. So again, to mention, mention just a couple of ideas, one is these family offices. Family offices might be created by a, a, a family or a person who had a, a significant windfall. Maybe they sold their business and now they've got a chunk of money and they're thinking, well, what am I going to do? I'm, what's, how am I going to spend my time? And family offices can do investing. They also might create a nonprofit and they do investing in, in nonprofits. And if you think of it that way, and it's really very mission driven. I, I love this idea. There's probably anywhere in the US from 13,000 I've heard on the low end to 30,000 I've heard on the high end with maybe $3 trillion worth of assets that's out there in terms of investable capital. It's a big number, but yeah. no one talks about it. So that's, so that's one thing. Uh, the other would be, again, these individual investors, these acquisition entrepreneurs, and what they're looking to do, maybe they've sold their business and they wanna be more arm's length with the next business they acquire, which is really cool, I think, that they think about it that way. Yeah. Instead of being a, a business owner, they want to own businesses. And so the trend with this, what's important, I think, for the audience to know of, is that this trans notion of transferability is super key because the management team uh, needs to be around. You know, the owner doesn't want to run the business. The new owner, I should say. The new owner doesn't want to run the business day to day. They want to own several businesses. They need people in place. So the mindset of oh, I can just sell my business and you know, I can retire and my loyal team that's been with me for 40 years, oh crap, they're going to retire too. <laughs> What's going to happen? Guess what? That's a reason your company is going to get discounted because that's a risk factor. And private equity groups largely want management teams intact also because private equity groups don't really have people to go put in place. Sometimes they want to hire a CEO and place a CEO. So that can happen. Yeah. Um, but that's not like there's a lot of headcount in a, in a PE group. Now a strategic buyer, really the answer is it depends because if it's an aqua hire situation, they want the engineers, they want the know-how, 
maybe it gets absorbed into existing business units and they kind of disband the work structure. Maybe in that case, it really doesn't matter. But so one of the things that is related to this age wave and the retirements is a lot of companies have not invested in the talent over time. And so when it does come down to who do I transition, who do I hand off my business to, who do I transition it to? We might've assumed it would have been the management team and it isn't. And then we might've assumed that it could have been family and it's not right. They, the kids don't want it. So they're kind of left holding the bag and then they uh-huh. have enjoyed maybe a nice lifestyle of cash, you know, that they've taken out from the business over the years. And they're finding that income replacement difficult. It's hard to think about. And so they're trapped in this feeling of being trapped is a scary thing. But that's where a lot of people are now. And I'll use kind of an age bracket for that, which will be the 55 to 65 and older, which is a lot of businesses in our country, a lot. That kind of goes with another trend that we've been seeing for a while. And there have been studies and research, and I've seen articles and summaries about this, that what you just described there at the end is only a symptom of a larger thing. So let's say you have people who built a family business and they say, well, I built this business because I want to be able to hand something over to the kids and the kids just don't want it. So you were seeing that in other areas too. Right. Uh, back in back in the day, uh, the biggest challenge that a, like a couple, you know, married or otherwise, that had children, their biggest challenge would be, oh boy, the kids are going to fight over who gets the house. And that's being replaced by none of the kids want the house. We're going to have to sell it while we're still alive to pay for the nursing home. Right. So that's... So that shift moves over into into business, and it's like, well, we built this with the idea that it was going to become a family business. It was going to get handed down, or you have a family business that's now in its fourth generation, and the fifth generation says, yeah, I don't want it. It can happen. Yeah. It can happen, especially if that business, no one has um, continued to invest in innovation, if they've just flatlined or they've declined. And others in their industry have outpaced them, maybe because of technology improvements and um, other different sources of differentiation. And so now they're left holding the bag saying, what are we going to do? And that's a difficult place to be. Some companies, if they're large enough, can explore an ESOP, which is a way to take money off the table for the current owners and um, build an opportunity for wealth creation for the employee base. And because of the tax structure and how ESOPs work, if the company is then sold again in the future, then the owners get a second bite at the apple. Um, but the main benefit is the tax, is the tax um, it's a tax benefit. And I'm not an ESOP expert, but I work with folks who know a lot more than I do and I'll just say uh, for a company that is at least, let's call it 2 million in EBITDA annually, they might find the juice is worth the squeeze. For companies that are smaller yeah. than that, they might not find that it's worth it because there is administration that goes along and it's complicated and all that. But, um, but the tax benefits can be quite significant. Sure, sure. And I like that idea that you can do things like that. One of the things I also... I'm seeing more and more research on is it's not just the idea that there's been a family business 
handed down for four generations. And then the fifth generation says, eh, I don't want it. It's they really don't want it. They don't even want to own it and pay somebody else to run it. They just want nothing to do with it. They don't care. So then what do you do? You've been you've been planning your your succession has been based on generational planning and the idea that the next generation of kids would own it and they just don't want it. Yeah. And now you have a culture, one more point here, that's been based on it being a family business, meaning that the generation that is eventually going to die or retire out are all related to each other. So when you bring somebody else in to manage it, or you start employing outside the family because the fifth generation isn't interested, now you have that dynamic of people not in the family working for the family business. And I've been there. I can tell you that's uh, about as much fun as being lobotomized sometimes <laughs> for all involved. The very first episode I recorded with Succession Stories um, with Tony Uphoff, he is the current CEO of Thomas which if anyone's listening knows the big yellow books and manufacturing, that was how parts were ordered. It was this giant catalog and Tom, the Thomas register. And so the company now is in its fifth, I think technically you'd say it's the fifth generation. He was, he's an outside hire CEO and really interesting conversation about that. And if anyone's sort of finding themselves in their shoes now, of course, Thomas is a pretty big company, Yeah, but, this mentality of, yeah, you know, sometimes we need, we do need to hire talent from the outside to be, to be a non-family leader. Um, I, that was my situation. I was hired in from the outside to, to be part of a third generation company. And there were really good things about that. There, there was, the chairman was the third gen, but his children were not part of the business. What they were, was they were participating on a family board and that's how they had input and understanding about the business and finances, but they were not involved day to day. In other cases, I've seen the fourth generation CEO of, of Highlights Magazine of Highlights. He did not want to be part of the company at all. It was not part of his, his plan. He was a PhD in physics and was doing really exciting things. Yeah. And he got involved in their family board and realized, and also I think the company had some management tragedy unexpectedly. And uh, he realized that, wait a minute, he was really tied in with the vision of this business and he was um, interested and eventually became CEO. So sometimes those things do happen. I think it's probably more common in a second gen or third gen than maybe a fourth or fifth. I think at fourth or fifth, the the company is so well-established at that point. Um, Whereas second gen, third gen, you have issues from you know, the grandpa's gone. Now my dad is gone. And so now it's me and my brothers. And, you know, you have some family sibling dynamics that you just got to get through. And if you make it through that good chance, you could, you could go on to the next generation, but second, second gen to third gens really can be very tricky um, for, for a number of reasons, emotional reasons and uh, sibling rivalries and all that kind of stuff. But also because the business might be struggling and if, if the family sees that the company is struggling, why would they want to be part of it? So getting the business right, getting the business on track and, and professionalizing and making it not so much about the family, the family culture can be part of, you can have a family feeling about the business, but to really have an eye for the sustainability of that entity is really the critical, critical thing. And so in my show, when I interview, I've interviewed all kinds of family businesses, as well as 
for, call it the first gen. I've interviewed second gen. I've interviewed gen nine and 10, which was wow. an amazing conversation because you're truly curating something for the family at that point when your family's original, some of your original customers include George Washington. I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, <laughs> you don't want to be the one that lets that company go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and to your point about the, you know, does the family want it? They have to be a fit. If they are not a fit, they don't have the skills, they're not interested, it's not going to work out. And um, I've seen too, in some companies will do a skip generation where the call it second gen is too young. They're not really ready to ascend to the top. So they bring in outside hire and part of that person's mission is to coach and mentor until those siblings and young men or women are able to become VP, CEO, president, whatever. And that can take, you know, a good five, six, seven years or whatever. Um, and that, that I've seen that work really well. And because that was part of their long-term succession planning. Okay, great, great. So are there any other like, you know, because we're, we're getting close to wrapping up here. Are there any other unannounced landmines that folks can run into as they go ahead on this journey that we have? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I I think some of the folks um, will be surprised to know ultimately what buyers are looking for and not looking for in a business. There can be all sorts of landmines. I talked to a software business and they were really excited. I said, tell me what's unique about what you do. And they said, well, what we do, we have this proprietary thing. We created that. And they're really proud about that. And I thought, oh, wow, okay, that sounds good. That's a proprietary thing. And then I talked to the buyer and the buyer said, yeah, that actually is a red flag for me. And I said, why? And he said, because I don't necessarily want the proprietary thing in software. I want it to be more ubiquitous and more, he didn't say open source, but you can kind of think of it that way, where I just want it to be more available. And, and make sure it's sort of state of, you know, it's, it's where it needs to be as opposed to them always updating and owning that. And so I haven't yet given that feedback to the software company, but I think that will definitely surprise them because it's a kind of a 180 from what they think. Yeah, certainly, certainly. So uh, this has been a fantastic conversation and i hope that uh something that we covered today uh was able to give some of our listeners a few things to think about whether you're still in startup mode whether you've taken some steps to develop your brand in your business whether or not you're even thinking about selling the business transitioning out of the business doing something else or what have you even if you believe that you found the dream business you always want to be that you know you're always going to be in it forever and nothing's ever going to change well <laughs> i uh, have been in businesses that i thought i'd want to be in forever that i grew extremely tired of and i also have gotten into businesses that disappeared because of some technological change think about how apple announcing that their devices would be phasing out compatibility with flash changed Everything that we know about video marketing and ask yourself if something like that could potentially happen to your model. One little change like that could eliminate everything that your business has done or stood for. And as you ponder these questions, what I would encourage you to do 
is to take up on Laurie Barkman's invitation. You're going to want to visit the website, meetlauriebarkman.com. And when you get there, schedule time with Laurie to discuss your goals and your next steps for a complimentary business assessment. Hundreds of owners have used this analysis to understand company value and strategies to create a more transferable business. Check it out even if you're not sure your business has any transferability at all. I didn't think my business had any transferability. Turns out it does. After your initial call with Lori, just as a thank you, you're also going to receive a free ebook, which is called The Overlooked Owner, and you'll discover more about how your readiness can impact the value of your business today, whether or not you're ready to sell, whether you're even thinking about selling. It's always good to have that additional value. That's meetlauriebarkman.com. And Laurie, thank you so much for being with us here today. It's been an honor and believe me, an education. Adam, thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.